Hello, everybody, and welcome to season three of In Event Talks, a podcast powered by Eventland. This season, we are talking about all things event tech in 2022 and beyond. We feature the most futuristic and technologically advanced leaders speaking candidly about their experiences with event tech. Grab a drink, press play, and join the conversation. I am Deji Oshikoya, and it's great to have you here with us. Welcome, 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 welcome once again. Welcome. This is another episode of In Event Talks. I am so glad that you're joining us today. Um, if you guys don't know me, my name is Deji, and I'll be your host today. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, In Event Talks is an original series by In Event where we speak to guests who are thought leaders working in a number of diverse industries. So in the past, we've had talks on like efficiency in the workplace, you know, mental health, things that you can do to improve your personal brand, which is a very interesting one that we had last week. And, you know, we're just keeping it going because it's been really fun so far. So I'm sure that we're going to have a really exciting one today as well, because we are joined by a wonderful guest speaker who goes by the name Mary Drummond. Now, as a little introduction, I'm just going to give a brief bio on what Mary is about and what she does, just to kind of give some context. And also, a shout out to everyone who's joining us from everywhere across the world. I'm seeing people from L.A., seeing people from, well, is that South Africa, maybe? This is very interesting. It's always nice to see where other people are coming from. So put it in the comments below. I see Colombia. Very excited. Very, very excited. Love it, guys. Um, so, yeah, I'm just going to give a brief intro about who Mary is, and then you kind of get to know her a little better. So Mary Drummond is a chief marketing officer at Worthix and host of the Voices of CX podcast. She has a passion for consumer behavior and an extensive experience in marketing research, specifically customer experience, as well as customer experience management. She's been featured as a CX thought leader across various publications and has authored multiple pieces on the states of consumer experience and is also considered one of the rising voices on the subject. Um, in addition to that, Mary currently serves as a board member at the University of Georgia, very interesting, has a mar master's in market research, and is a marketing mem mentor at AMA, as well as a member of Chief, which are things that I'm sure we'll find out a bit more about later. Mary, the floor is yours. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Mary. <laughs> Hi, DJ. Nice to be here today. Nice to see everyone online. Um, I'm so happy to be here. Uh, let's uh, get straight into it. Is there anything that you want me to say first to break the ice. Uh, um, Honestly, I don't know. Well, if, if, you already said most of it <laughs> in my bio. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you have any icebreakers, we would love to hear about that. Little Birdie told me that you might have been involved in a little wrestling at some point. No, what? not wrestling. I'm a weightlifter. So <laughs> Ooh, weightlifting, weightlifting. Interesting. So, I mean, I would love to hear a bit more about that as the conversation goes on. Yeah. You know, um, besides that, I thought that was something that was super, super interesting because you don't hear that every day weightlifting I know. Um, what got you into that before we actually get into the the subject you know it was it was very random i i joined the gym i saw some people lifting i thought it was cool um <laughs> started doing it it's fantastic it, it kind of blew my mind it was something that went along so well with what i believe in as a person as a professional yeah. uh you know it's it's the challenge of constantly having to outdo yourself and get better every single day and the discipline and the consistency and everything else in your life has to work together. You have to orchestrate all of these elements in your life to be able to practice this ridiculously challenging sport. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, and, and for me, it, it was just, it was love at first sight. And so I've been doing it for five years. It's a great time, so fun. <laughs> so that's something that you still currently do. I do, I do. I 
So I have a, a coach that I work with. I work two times a week with him. So I'm an amateur, not a professional, guys. Fair I don't even, yeah. Um, I, I don't like, in, in my case, and at this point, I'd be a, a, a master because I'm really old for an athlete. You know, and it, it's funny, in, 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 in any sort of athletics and sports, you know, you get past age 30 and you're old all of a sudden yeah. you're like you go into some like weird geriatric category and of the sport you know um, yeah. and it's because it is challenging you know your body doesn't work in the same way and in, in, in high performance it really takes a toll so there's yeah. a reason that athletes uh retire in their 30s and i'm feeling it man i am feeling it <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm sure that that has factored in some ways into just how you live your life, just considering like the lifestyle that it pr um, pr produces yeah. or promotes. But I'll get a bit yeah. more into that later because I'm super curious. But obviously, that's not <laughs> what we're here about today. I really want to know about your customer experience career that you've had so far. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So I think my first question then would be, I'd like to ask why you decided to focus your career on that specifically, like on customer experience. Mm -hmm. You know, it was it wasn't really a decision. It was one of those things that was kind of uh, thrust upon me. I would say, you know, I I started off um, working in an entirely different career. I started off in education, then I became an entrepreneur, founded my own business when I was pretty young, and I, I worked at that for so long. And um, circumstance, happenstance, let's say, had me move continents and leave everything behind and have to start from scratch. And it gave me an opportunity to press reset on my career. And not everybody gets that opportunity, I think. And I was lucky because I got to pick. And I ended up picking marketing because it was something that always fascinated me and drove me. I have a huge passion for consumer behavior, behavior economics. And, and, and that seemed to align pretty well with marketing when it came to career paths. And, and customer experience just happened to fall into the category of markets that we were targeting in, in my role at Worthix. So diving in, getting to know the industry, becoming familiar, speaking to people, writing articles, it was, it was just part of the job. And, and ultimately, I think I had so many conversations. Um, I met so many people and I, I listened so much. And, and that listening eventually filled my cup to overflowing so that I, I started having my own thoughts and my own opinions and, and people listened. So it really was those, one of those things that happened or so organically. And, and I think sometimes in life, the best things do happen organically and, and rather accidentally. And that's kind of how it happened with me and customer experience. Interesting. I love those types of journeys, you know, when you speak about happenstance, because I think personally, I can relate to a lot of that as well. Um, at some point in my life, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer and somehow ended in more in marketing mm -hmm. and public relations. So that's very interesting because mm -hmm. I, I think if I had gone and been a lawyer, I would have hated every second of it, you know, so it's, it's always very interesting where you can find things that you actually enjoy. Um, yeah. I guess my next question then, obviously, like being in, in any field, in any industry, it has, it has its ups and downs, you know, certain things that might challenge you, things that, you know, might improve you, whatever the case may be, but it's never smooth sailing entirely. So my mm -hmm. question then would be, what has been the worst experience you've had as a customer? And I guess on the other hand, can you tell us about like a more remarkable customer experience and I guess how these things formed you? Yeah. Well, here's here's the interesting part. And and I may blow your mind a little here with this point of view, because not, not a lot of people actually take on this perspective. But 
the worst experiences I've ever had are with companies that I still do business with. And on the other hand, perhaps some of the best experiences that I've had are companies that I no longer am a client of, where I'm, I, I no longer buy from. And, and the observation <laughs> there, like if you were to stop and think of the exact same thing, you might have a similar conclusion. The hmm. best experience you ever had may not be a company you're loyal to anymore. And the reason for that loyalty has nothing to do with how satisfied you were, how blown away you were, how remarkable or not that experience was. And, and that's where it gets interesting because so many companies are so focused on constantly providing a remarkable experience, you know, and, and even the poll that Innovent put out uh, leading up to this event, I think yesterday or the day before, um, asking people what was the most important part of delivering a customer experience. And the winner by far was delivering memorable experiences. And in fact happy or sad, satisfied or not, recommend or not, they're very, very poor indicators of loyalty and churn. Because at mm. the end of the day, what truly drives loyalty and what drives customers to buy are whether or not they perceive that an offering is the most worth it alternative on the market. So I'll give you an example. Um, for those of you who are in Europe or in the UK, you probably know Ryanair and you probably know Ryanair as being just the like the worst airline ever here in the US. Yes. Be smart, right? it's, <laughs> it's just like the laughing stock of the industry. How do these companies survive? How are these companies so profitable? I think that Ryanair is one of the most profitable airlines in Europe and they are known for having the worst experience ever. Whereas you get its counterpart, British Airways, which is like a luxury carrier. And British Airways, I don't know, de declared bankruptcy and had to be bailed out and God knows what. And they're constantly struggling. So why is it that a brand that's constantly delivering remarkable experiences may not be as profitable as the one that constantly makes the list of worst experiences yeah. ever? Right. So what it really has to do is when a customer is deciding and they're looking at you versus all of the other alternatives in the market, are you worth it? In other words, everything that they have to sacrifice versus what they're going to gain, if that balance is positive, they will choose you. And if it's not positive, they won't. So if they're going to get an, an amazing experience, but that experience is going to cost $3,000, they don't want to spend $3,000 or they'd rather pay $600 and spend the extra cash on a nice hotel when they get to their destination or anything else, then you're not gonna be picked no matter how remarkable, no matter how incredible, no matter how surprise and delight it is, right? So it really matters if, if ultimately all of the drivers that are playing in customers' minds when they're making the choice, if you're worth it or not, and if you are worth it, no matter what the price is, no matter what they have to sacrifice, they'll do it. And if you're not worth it, no matter how shiny and attractive the offer is, customers aren't going to buy. So that's something that we really need to start taking into consideration when we're looking at designing customer experiences and trying to find profitability in the customer experiences that we're bringing into our yeah. organizations. Yeah.
and I, I can I can imagine that a large part of that, like you've described, is just really knowing what the customer wants from you. You know, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to just designing it based on like metrics that might not exist. Like actually yep. knowing the customer themselves is is a very yep. important part of that. Thank you for that perspective. That's very interesting. Um, I think I'm just gonna plow ahead um and ask about like an article that I came across of yours that you wrote. Mm -hmm. Um this is about Netflix. Um so it mm -hmm. was I remember correctly, it was like based on the New York Times, um, Netflix was the worst performing stock in the S&P 500, having tumbled 60 mm percent -hmm. this year. Now, I just want to mm -hmm. get your perspective on how you relate like the customer experience that Netflix has curated with this fall. You know, so like how would you view it in your perspective? Yeah. Uh, well, for those of you who are interested in reading that whole article, you can find it on my LinkedIn page. It's, it's pretty easy to find. It's uh, Mary Drummond. Um, but here's. Here's the part. I, I don't know if it is connected to customer experience as most people see it, right? Mm. So again, a big part of customer experience that companies are overlooking all the time is customer expectations and how quickly they change, right? Mm. So when it comes to understanding or you know forecasting these expectations, that's incredibly difficult to do. And companies have many ways to forecast these decisions. And one of the things that I researched when I was writing that article was that Blockbuster, the company that was you know, disrupted by Netflix, back in the day, they were the disruptor. They were mm. the kings of the category. They ran so many players out of the market with their really innovative technology and approach to the customer experience. And one of the main things that set Blockbuster apart, and this is all the way back when I was one years old, 1985, was that the founder had a background in, in customer databases, which was something really rare at that time. And he used those databases to, to actually form giant maps with regional demographics on consumers and what they wanted and what they needed. And each Blockbuster store had products and snacks and, and, and items that were tailored to that specific demographic. And that was groundbreaking at the time. So what is it that's groundbreaking right now for people who are on Netflix, the current category king, right? It's predictive analytics. It's having AI built into the platform to measure consumer behavior and every single action that they're taking and get all that historical or transactional data of how users actually interact with the platform and use it to make forecasts and predict how they're going to behave in the future, right? Now, this is a really interesting, really scalable way to understand your customer because you actually remove any active participation from the customer completely. So predictive analytics falls under the realm of what we call quantitative market research, right? So it's, it's looking at the market through a quantitative lens, um, being able to get those metrics, adding them up, getting dashboards and, and um, regressions and, and, and trying to make forecasts of numbers based on that past behavior. Now, predictive analytics absolutely is a game changer for organizations out there. And to be able to follow behavior and make these predictions is amazing. 
is incredible. But there are dangers to eliminating the voice of customer entirely when it comes to making strategic decisions, especially in markets that are so unpredictable, especially in an era where there are global pandemics that are absolutely turning the universe around and shaking it. You know, all your predictive analytics mean nothing. They're no longer a reflection of the reality that you live in. So how can you use predictive analytics from two years prior to predict a present that bears no resemblance whatsoever to that transactional data, right? So mm. the COVID pandemic was one of the things that absolutely made all of that data irrelevant because customers behaved in a completely different manner. So what I think is lacking in this case, and perhaps... Of course, there are so many market elements uh, that are that are causing uh, Netflix's shares to tumble. But one thing they need to reintroduce somehow is the way to keep up with their customers' expectations, to find out what their behavior is now, not two years ago, to keep mm. up with it in the form of a tracker as it changes. So that is taking the quantitative data from your predictive analytics but it also means connecting it to your qualitative data. And qualitative data is the research dedicated to understanding why and getting that outside-in perspective of how your customer sees your business, not how you think your customers see your business, mm. right? Now, yeah. while qualitative is so much deeper and it provides so much more insight on how people feel, how they're interacting, it's driving decisions. It's extremely difficult to scale because it requires a one-on-one -on -one conversation of a researcher with a customer. It requires tiny focus groups of like max 12 people. And to be able to represent your market, you have to have an accurate representation of your entire universe of customers. So if you're in hundreds of markets, then that that research methodology has to be practiced in a way that samples each of these markets. So it's not scalable, it's not practical, and it's why many, many companies fail to do it entirely. But you have technology and you have innovation that's making it possible at this point to scale qualitative technology through research. So that's what my company, Worthix, does. We provide a blend of qualitative and quantitative technology to be able to understand at scale how customer expectations are shifting over the time so that companies can keep up. And instead of basing decisions on data from yesterday, you base it on data from today. And we believe that that provides a much more accurate representation of the future and it allows companies to keep up with the speed of change. That is very, very interesting. And it's funny that you bring a qualitative data because I think just with the way the world seems to be progressing today, um, it feels like a lot of CEOs are very skeptical just about things that aren't grounded in numbers. Yes. You know, um, so it's actually it's yes. very interesting to hear that perspective because typically qualitative data, um, I believe, kind of gets panned to the side side a little. Mm -hmm. But just listening to you speak, um, it could actually be the difference between being highly competitive and like, you know, losing bleeding customers like it feels like a Netflix is doing, for example, because I could yeah. tell you for free, like my Netflix subscription, I had to let go of it after a while because it just, it felt like it was, I'm sorry, Netflix, if anyone from Netflix is watching by any chance, but it just, it didn't feel like it was servicing any personal needs anymore. But like you said, it's actually yeah. very difficult to actually, um, I guess, execute this, this methodology of research, you know? So 
I guess it would just, I, I guess, well, how, how then could you drive? So I, the question that I'll ask after that is that how then would you drive it home to drive home the importance of having this qualitative research in addition to like all the different numbers and I guess like analytics um, that maybe like an entrepreneur or like a CEO would typically be willing to go for. So why, why would you, how would you, why, how, why is it important in your opinion um, and what big mm-hmm. difference could it make to like companies like Netflix, you know, in this highly competitive mm-hmm. field that we have? Well, I'll just build off of uh, the answer from the previous question and, and try to connect that. So um, what I'm saying is don't throw away your pred- predictive analytics. They're great. And they offer you um, um, a really good prediction, right? But the, <laughs> I was talking about this with my team the other day. No one looks in a crystal ball to see the past, <laughs> True. right? We're True. always looking towards the future. We're trying to understand. We're trying to make sense of behavior to predict the future. Um, so when you're doing that, having any sort of idea is great. You know, having any sort of idea of how customers behaved in the past, what what tends to be customers' behaviors in this circumstance, it, it at least kind of gives you a north in, in which you can start moving. So if you add qualitative data to that mix, if you add the voice of customer telling you how they feel, why they're making the decision, why they're choosing you. So, I mean, let's take it back to my first answer, which is what makes a company worth it? What makes a product, a service, an offering worth it? What makes a customer choose you instead of all of the other competitors in the market? Right. So there are so many markets that are fully commoditized nowadays. Even Netflix, when Netflix used to be groundbreaking, now they're absolutely commoditized. There are so many other players that are offering the same experience or better. Right. So so what is it that's setting them apart? What what is it that's keeping them from stooping into like absolute price wars, right? Which is like nickel and diming for customers. Yeah. You know, at this point, they are they're taking on advertising. Like, come on, that was the one thing they swore they would never do, but they're, yeah. now they have to do it, right? So yeah. um, what is it that's making customers choose to stay on Netflix or not? Like, I can tell you right now, the one thing that's keeping me on Netflix currently is Seinfeld. Mm. <laughs> but, mm. you know, how many people out there feel it's worth it to pay, I don't know, however much Netflix is costing nowadays just to have access to Seinfeld reruns? Yeah. You know, not everybody has the same um, income that I have or the same access to funds or the same distribution of funds or even the same price point as I have. Right. So so what is it that's making each of these individuals at the end of the day say, yes, it's still worth it for me to pay that fee to Netflix every month? I'm sure that a lot of people out there only considered it was worth it because they were sharing their passwords with all of these Pieces. <laughs> yeah. It was somehow benefiting them, whether they were splitting the cost or whether they were just considered that really good friend that shares their Netflix password, right? Yeah. So everyone has a reason why Netflix is worth it for them. And what Netflix needs to understand is what they have to keep doing as an organization to stay worth it for the people who are already subscribing and what they need to do better in order to not lose anybody and make sure that they're still acquiring market even past saturation, right? So being able to listen to your voice of customer on a constant basis, tracking their changing expectations, 
tracking the experiences they're providing that are truly impacting the decision to stay or go. That's the important part. And you can only do that if you're asking your customers. Now, when I say asking customers, there are a lot of ways to do it. But for enterprise organizations like Netflix, they have to be able to do this at scale, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, our technology provides a way to get qualitative feedback at scale, but there are other options out there. There are other organizations out there. They don't do it as well as we do. Excuse me. Shameless plug right here. <laughs> but, but the important thing is being acutely aware of that need to tap into the voice of customer and maybe rescue a little bit of that empathy. Because sometimes you go so far quantitative that you eliminate the human. You eliminate the element of humanity from the transaction yeah. and you just keep the numbers, right? Yeah. So. I, as, as with all things, I believe that balance is so crucial, you know, so balancing numbers with human and an understanding of human psyche and human behavior and, and what drives us. I believe that that's the true future of data. And for companies who are on board, they're going to sail into the future as opposed to potentially getting disrupted by some new competitor who gets it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that could ultimately be the biggest threat, you know, if they find, if somebody else now manages to slot into that space of representing yeah. the customer's voice where you're lacking, that could be a huge loss yeah. for them, but it will be lovely to see how that actually evolves over time. Um, and even just yeah. understanding, like, I, I guess even just you speaking about understanding how to do these things at scale, I think that's something that we'd love to hear a lot more about, but I guess I don't want to deviate too much to speak too much about Netflix. So let me just go <laughs> to my next question and just kind of understanding, you know, just a bit more about the customer experience. So mm -hmm. in that line of thought, my next question then would be, so what essential aspects must we consider? So even just like in an event, for example, what essential aspects must we consider to offer an outstanding customer experience in your opinion? Mm -hmm. Well, there we go. So when it comes to that outstanding customer experience, is an outstanding experience what your customer wants from you? Hmm. And that's what you have to ask because maybe they don't. So understanding what you need to be outstanding at, you know? So it, it, there's science behind it, okay? There's, when, when you understand uh, how behavior psychology plays in and you know that our minds are constantly working like miniature scales, right? Constantly weigh, weighing out the pros and cons of everything. What we're giving up, versus what we're gaining. So what we, our research and what we determined is that when it comes to purchase decisions specifically, our brain calculates five factors and, and these factors are tangible and intangible, okay? So the tangible factors that we weigh out when we're making a decision about a purchase, price, quality, and relationship, okay? So relationship is the call center, but it's also how you're treated when you walk into a web, uh, into a store or, or how easy it is to navigate through the website, um, how easy the transaction is, checking out, et cetera. Anything that has to do with the customer interacting with the brand in any of its channels, that's relationship, okay? So for some people, the price point is absolutely the most important thing. And they need, they'll need to regulate their expectations about quality and relationship if they're going for price. Remember Ryanair, Spirit, the, the same thing right there, right? You, you yes. can't expect a Delta experience flying Spirit. It's not going to happen, right? Yeah. The same way that you can't compare on a price point 
um, a, I don't know, a Chevy Cruze versus a Ferrari. There's no comparison. So price and quality are always relative because they compete in their own categories, right? Hmm. Um, now, the intangibles, that's the part that the market has a hard time grasping and definitely has a hard time measuring because they can only be measured and answered through qualitative research, which is social proof, right? How, how we are perceived by the people around us for the decisions and the choices that we make. You know, think Apple. Um, and brand identification, how deeply we identify with that brand. And, and that has a lot to do with demographics. It has a lot to do with um, who you are, where you live, what you stand for, what your politics are, what you feel represents you. How you identify with a brand is a huge definer of whether you choose to do business with them or not. I mean, a, a fantastic example of this is Nike when they worked with Colin Kaepernick and they absolutely made so many people angry for using Kaepernick on there. And everyone was like, well, I'm going to burn my Nikes. Ultimately, Nike knew what they were doing and their sales went through the roof. Why is that? Because they understood what their consumer base believed in and valued. And that's what they decided to push. And it worked for them, right? We have a lot of cases where it doesn't work at all. But when brands shy away from making a strong identification or connection with their customers, they risk having somebody else do it, right? Reebok takes no stands on a political basis. And ultimately, you don't have the, the loyal, fervent Reebok fans that, like you have from Nike, right? There's, yeah. there's, there's no brand out there that carries that weight in that manner, you know? So, so creating that connection on an intangible level is so important, you know? So anyway, those are the four or five drivers and there's, there's no specific order. This one is more important than that one. It all varies according to who you are, what you need, what your expectations are, who the players are, what the competitive landscape looks like, but that's what people are taking into consideration. So what we're trying to tell companies is, hey, customers think you're worth it because your price point is fantastic for the quality that you offer. So don't touch price because your consumer is extremely price sensitive. Or mm. your customers have such a strong connection with your brand, they're so loyal that even if you increase your prices and your quality goes down a little bit, customers are gonna keep buying from you. Or, hey, you need to increase your prices even though your customers are price sensitive. Perhaps if you work a little bit more on branding and you build a closer connection to your customers, that'll keep your loyal customers loyal to you, even if the prices go up. So that's what we're doing on our end. And the way we find this is by talking to customers and understanding which behaviors lead to certain actions and will those actions or not be beneficial to a company. So it gives companies a blueprint of what would happen happen if they change the way that those different drivers are organized with the customer's experiences, right? So it's a little bit complex. I mean, we're talking about a mixture of, of marketing research plus social science here. It, you know, it's not one, two, three, but it is possible to understand this. It is possible to, to um, know 
why your customers are choosing you and work specifically to boosting the experience that have the highest likelihood of driving experiences and diminishing the ones that are leading your customers to churn. Thank you very much for sharing that, Mary. That was very, very insightful. Um, I think one thing that I just want to recap in that, um, so I just want to make sure I got it down because I think I might have missed one. So you said there were five different things to consider mm -hmm. and there were price, yeah. quality, um, social proof, relationship. relationships. So I think that's the one that I missed, relationships, which is um, yeah. how they perceive you, like if they interact with your website or like walk into your store, that sort of thing. Customer service, if they customer have to service, call yeah. you. Yeah. So any sort of interaction that the customer has, any touch point, let's say mm. that the customer has with your brand, we measure through relationship. Um, in, in many ways, we would put customer effort. A lot of people ask me about that. Well, Mary, how do you measure customer effort? I would put effort there because it has to do with how customers are interacting with the experiences that you're providing as an organization. So um, if you are really, really high effort, I think that that would take a toll mostly on your relationship driver. Hmm. Thanks for that. Thank you very much for the clarification. Um, I'm just going to keep plowing ahead because I also don't want to take too much of your time as well as <laughs> our audience. Um, so I, my next question then, you recently became a part of Chief. Um, so this is a pro mm -hmm. for anyone who doesn't know what Chief is, um, a private network designed for the most powerful women in executive leadership just to strengthen their leadership, magnify their influence, and, you know, just pave the way to bring others with them. So as part of your work with them, um, I just think it's absolutely incredible that you're part of this group um, because I think just things that specifically just put women in spaces where they can learn, where they can glean for women in more like higher positions than them are always welcome, just creating more opportunity in general. Um, so my question then is like, why was it important to create and be part of this initiative? It's funny because when I, I made the announcement about joining Chief, one of my coworkers were like, oh, that's so cool. You joined Chief. It's only for women. That's sexist. And uh, <laughs> I looked at him and I was like, you know what? I mean, I, you know, that's, I mean, this is a valid point. And when I was considering or not, because it's, it's a membership that requires a hefty investment. Mm. And that's kind of part of it. You know, that that investment means that it truly has to be important. It has to be worth it for you yeah. to become a member yeah. because they want <laughs> people that are fully engaged. Right. <laughs> um, but so when I was deciding whether or not I wanted to join, I was like, well, you know, why do I want to do something in network that's just for women? And then I realized that men have been doing little boys clubs for centuries. Years. Centuries. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, these yeah. things have been around for so long, you know? Yeah. So why not? Why not have a private network for women to connect with each other, for powerful women to be able to find an environment and a space where everyone is very business oriented, where we, we build trust and networking circles so that business flows more easily. It, it creates more positive and, and more um, fluid word of mouth. Why, why wouldn't we do that? Yeah. So is it sexist or is it quality? It's I don't know. Matter. It depends on how you frame it, I guess. <laughs> it's matter, yeah. But you know, when it, when it comes to, when it comes to that, when it comes to opportunities, um, there, there is something to be said about how women do business. And, and it is very different. We, we don't separate things very well. We don't separate work from our lives. And I'm okay with that. 
I'm okay with that. I'm a huge proponent of the human experience. I'm, I'm a proponent of work being a part of your life and not something that you, hey, you spend eight hours of your day at this place. You know, that's like 70% of your life at this place where you're not allowed to be yourself. You're not allowed to express yourself. You're not allowed to feel comfortable. You have to have your shield up the entire time, your armor on and making sure that you're untouchable. <laughs> I'm in favor of, of having personal and work mesh and blend together. I, you know, this this doesn't mean I'm in favor of you smoking dope at work. That's that's not the point. <laughs> but it, it, it does have to do with allowing yourself to be yourself mm. at work and and in order to do that we have to learn how to have more grace we have to learn how to have more comprehension and understanding and empathy for the people who are around us because if we want to show up as ourselves our co-workers want to do the same thing and perhaps they think differently or look differently or believe different things or value different things than we do you know so that this movement doesn't only have to do with showing up and being yourself and allowing yourself to be vulnerable and present and authentic. It has to do with learning how to respect the authenticity and vulnerability of others as well. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that's something that women do well. So yeah. to have women at the helm of this movement of authenticity and vulnerability I, I think it's really beautiful. And, and that's the world that I want to be part of. You know, if I have another 20, 30 years in, in the workplace, then I definitely want to spend that being myself. Mm. And, and I want to work towards that. And I want my children to be able to have that future in business as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, definitely a lovely initiative to be a part of. And, you know, that could teach so many different things. Because I mean, I've come just listening to you speak, I, I've come across um, different reports, like just over time, I think the CNBC had one one time um, where it spoke about how like the woman who participated in the survey, 60% of them said they had never negotiated their salary, you know, and that's the sort of conversation that I'm sure this sort of thing would drive where it's like you should feel comfortable enough to have that conversation mm -hmm. and not cower yeah. down if you feel like you deserve it, you know, so I definitely commend right. you on that. That is an excellent initiative yeah. to be a part of. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to go to my next question and just trying to rush a little bit as well. I'm loving this. <laughs> Ultimately, I know that I have to respect your time. So I'm just going to keep ask a couple more. Um, so I guess my next question, just following from this initiative and like executive leadership um, by women and just high, high rising companies and things of that nature. Um, there's you, would you say there was, I guess some, you could kind of say there was slowly closing the gender gap, but what are your mm -hmm. like, in your opinion, some of the key steps that women can take to be stronger leaders, you know, like just to like take more positions of power and just kind of stand in that authentically and, you know, as themselves, like you described. Um, I was listening to a podcast that said that one of the main things that began to drive gender equality at the workplace was CEOs with daughters. Hmm. And that really stood out to me because it had to do with powerful men who were able to empathize and use their position of power to pave a new path. And it took love. It, it took love. It took them loving someone and not wanting that disadvantage for somebody they love to hmm. make a difference. So as this gap gets smaller and smaller, 
for those of us who are in a position of power, it doesn't have to be huge power. It can be small power. It does lie on us to use that power to close the wedge even more and, and use it to in, in every single decision that we make take into consideration that the bias is solidified in the market. And in order to break a bias, we have to be really intentional about it. So it's not enough just to be aware of it. We have to be aware of it and take intentional planned steps to make different decisions, you know? So, I mean, I, we've got generations. I'm, I'm a millennial, a, an old millennial, if you would. But for me in the workplace, I would... I would never consider as a leader, as a decision maker, as someone who holds the power to regulate salaries and hire and fire people, I would never consider paying a man more than a woman to a point where it doesn't even make sense in my mind. But that's because I was raised that way. I was raised with this belief. So it's natural to me. So that's when it also becomes our responsibility as parents to educate our our children and raise our children to think differently and behave differently and want different things and fight for better things. Right now, it's about women. In the future, perhaps it's about gender identification or perhaps it's about religious beliefs. So when it comes down to it, teaching work ethic, business ethic, um, how to promote positive, healthy work culture regardless of what the person is or is not and understanding what that matters in that moment is what they're able to create and produce how they are also a valued functional member of society that deserves access to the exact same things that everyone else does you know so that education i think is still so important and it's it's up to us to truly keep pushing it um, until it becomes normal. Something becomes normal once it's accepted and believed by the majority, right? I, I heard an interesting thing the other day is that, would you consider a microwave to be technology, Deji? Would I consider a microwave to be technology? Yeah. I mean, yes, to a degree, but I feel like that might be the wrong answer in the context of what you're saying. But yes, I would consider it to be technology, but it's very right. commonplace to do. So it's not very, it feels like something I've had my entire life. Exactly. So technology is only considered new and innovation when it's introduced to that in, in that generation. The mm. generation that's already born into that technology just regards it as something normal or day to day and doesn't see it through mm. any lens of innovation. Right. So yeah, once yeah. you are born into it, it's just part of the world as you know it and not something yeah. groundbreaking on a technological perspective in the same way that my daughter doesn't know a world without phones, right, without cell phones, without Internet. Yeah. So I also hope that my daughter does not know a world with a, with a pay app between genders. And I think that that normalization is what truly going to be the final push to to make this a past that none of us missed yeah definitely definitely and it's very interesting that you brought up um, um the subject of your daughter like recognizing phones is something that she's always known i saw an interesting trend on the internet recently where if you have people from differing generations um maybe like 
I guess like 25 and maybe not 25, probably younger than 25, like 18 below and then like 18 above. If you ask them what it feels like to mimic a phone call, people 18 and above or thereby, I can't remember exactly what the metrics are, answer a phone call like this with their hand. Mm -hmm. And if you ask a younger person, they do this. And I've never felt older in my entire life. <laughs> I've never felt older I will, in my I entire life. I will make you, you feel older right now. Um, <laughs> how do you make how do you make the shape of a heart with your hands like this right it's like this now interesting so they <laughs> i've actually seen that like within just the index fingers that they have it's it's just it's so weird <laughs> it is so weird your age, yeah, by the way you make a heart <laughs> <laughs> exactly or answer the phone I'm, I'm just there's so many things that are so hard to keep up with and i thought being the kind of person that i was i would be able to um, just keep up with the times. But the older that I've gotten, the less energy I have for it. I just let I let the kids have it, man. Like they can have that. I know. <laughs> they can have that. I know. I have no interest I know. When you, in keeping up. With. When you when you have when you find yourself complaining about things like the HOA or your water bill <laughs> or yeah. you know, like that's how you know that you have become your parent. There's no escaping it. You're it's old. Ridiculous. <laughs> It's but ridiculous. I like I have made a vow. I have made a vow that I'm going to keep up with technology. You no, know, I work in the tech space. All of this. Yeah. I am 100 sure that I am. I'm going to get sick of it so soon. I'm just going to be like, eh, child, <laughs> teach me how to use this app. Help me troubleshoot. <laughs> it's always such an interesting evolution. I think for me, one of the funniest ways that it expresses is like you see. You see like a person maybe like middle age or significantly older getting mad at their phone like it's not working and it's like no you're you're not doing what it's supposed to you know so that's always just very interesting to see um but yeah we're almost wrapping yeah. up i'm just going to ask two more questions and i think these are sure. going to be a bit more personal as opposed to like you know which is more about okay. the field so the first question mm -hmm. is going to be what's the best professional advice you've received to this point and the second mm -hmm. that I'm going to finish off with, and if you need me to repeat in the future after answering your question, let me know. Um, what are three books that have changed your life? It could be personally, professionally, just three books that have really impacted you. So the best professional advice I've got, I think, I, I, I would say it's from my husband. My husband is, is, is an amazing professional. He's been in the market. He knows how to navigate the corporate world so well. And, and as a woman, I find myself in many cases intimidated to speak loud enough or to ask questions or to make a cold approach to someone, you know? Yeah. And the one thing that he always tells me, and I try to keep that voice in my head every time I do something that I'm afraid of doing, is that, hey, as it stands right now, the no is guaranteed. You already mm. have no. So if you ask and the answer is no, you lost nothing. But what if you get a yes? You know, so so stepping out there and, and asking the worst thing that you can happen is you're right back where you started. And the best thing that you can happen is that you can actually get a yes and accomplish what you needed. You know, so don't be afraid of doing something that scares you or something that's challenging or something that the answer may be no to. Mm. It's still OK. Um, yeah. And when it comes to. Uh, the books, I mean, I, I really, I'm a huge sucker for, for behavior science and for psychology. So I think the my favorite book is uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, where he talks about memory and how our brains process memory in, in a really, really incredible way. 
And it also talks about biases and how biases actually rule the way our brain functions because biases were created to save us, to help us survive as a race and understanding how biases work and that most of the time they're supposed to be healthy, but sometimes they can hinder us depending because we live in a world that's very different than the, the world of our ancestors. And I mean, our DNA has been programmed for hundreds of thousands of years. It's not the last 100 years that can change DNA programming. So sometimes overriding those biases takes a lot more effort than we think. So learning yeah. how to do that, there's kind of a blueprint for doing that in that book, Thinking Fast and Slow. So I think it's an absolute must, especially for anybody who works marketing, understanding how the brain works and understanding how you can actually design experiences to become more memorable or uh, to, to, to create a different impression or a more lasting impression on people. So Daniel Kahneman's book is like my number one favorite. Um, and then I would say that my second one is uh, predictably irrational, which is also a behavior scientist. This is Dan Ariely there talking okay. once again about human behavior and, and how we are completely rationally rational being so we are completely irrational but it is possible to predict our irrationality as humans because human nature in fact and the craziness of human nature is predictable and mm. i always tell my kids this when they're having an emotional breakdown and they're like no one understands how i feel i'm like sweet child there have been volumes <laughs> in literature <laughs> written about what you're feeling right now yeah. so hey you're not that special but hey <laughs> the good part is there's a solution <laughs> you know so yeah. as humans we all do the same things and, and understanding what those things are understanding what those triggers are to behavior is cool and fascinating yeah um and then I would say the last one, and I'll try to take a little bit more of a personal approach on this. Okay. It's um, it's a book called The Great Experiment, and I read it very recently. And it's, uh, I think I wrote it down here. Let me read it because it's long. It says, why diverse dem democracies fall apart and how they can endure. So the idea is democracy as a whole was written to favor the majority. But what if your democratic nation is formed of of minorities how are you able to give minorities representation and voice in the political yeah. system that favors majorities so it's a really fascinating read and it's very bipartisan it doesn't pick sides and it, it, it's able to create a couple of, of guidelines and reflections on how we can democracy is still the best form of government according to this book but there, there are tweaking, let's say, that are necessary in order to have everybody feel like they're in a place of equity. So that would be my personal recommendation of three books. Thank you so much. We appreciate that. For audience members, I hope you took note of those because those could definitely improve your customer experience <laughs> understanding. I definitely took some notes on my end, but I, I'm sure like if I don't even remember, we can always get like our team to reach out to you to confirm the names of those books Absolutely. again. Just so that they're Absolutely. accessible. And usually we would take questions at this point, but I think we might be running out of time. Um, but let me just see if there's any questions in the audience very quickly that I can just jump to that we could try and answer. 
guys, if you have your questions, let me know. We're about to lose Mary, and we're not going to get her for a while. We <laughs> <laughs> might as well send them now. But um, in the absence of any questions, honestly, Mary, this has been incredible. Like, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I can't speak enough about how much I've learned personally, like even just the different five things that you mentioned um, as far as like intangibles, intangibles to look for, um, to look, um, what can I, what's the word that I'm looking for, to look out for as far as like mm-hmm. curating your customer experience, even just recapping them. So like price, quality, relationships, social proof and brand identification. That was stuff I hadn't come across before. And that was definitely something that I learned. Um, and also like another theme that seems to just be coming through with all the different talks that we've had just the importance of knowing your why, you know, knowing your why. And as far as like customer experience is concerned, you definitely stressed home that knowing the why is super important. And then as well as like the um, an understanding of qualitative um, research in addition to quantitative, because like, you know, we've, we discussed, it feels like a lot of CEOs are very more in tune with like the numbers game. And if you like, just with like the trends of like AI and just trying to predict everything, it is super important to have um, the voice of your customer. And just a bunch of other stuff, Mary. Honestly, this has been amazing. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to join us. Thank you so much. We appreciate it's it. My pleasure. It's my pleasure once again. And I invite any audience members who, who want to connect with me. I'm very open to connecting with people on LinkedIn. And I do love talking about this stuff. It is my passion. I'm lucky enough to work with something I'm very passionate about. So uh, i I welcome any feedback, any suggestions, any questions. I'm I'm always around. Thank you. I will definitely be taking that opportunity because I always try and connect <laughs> with every single guest that we have. It just, you know, it, it, it keeps Wonderful. the information and the relationship going. And I feel like I still always learn, you know, so I will definitely be yeah. doing that. And just to call this to awesome. a close, guys, thank you to everyone from around the world who's joined us. Um, um, just to close out, delivering a customer experience is hugely important for any business. Um, the better the customer experience, the more repeat um, customer and positive reviews you receive. And I think just while also simultaneously reducing the friction of customer complaints and returns. These are things that I want us to reflect on and keep until next time. But thank you so much in the meantime, Mary, for sharing your experience with us. And we hope to see you all in the next webinar. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to InEvent Talks a podcast by Eventland. If you're interested in joining our global community for event profs, use hashtag Eventland to find us on social media. Until next time, have a lovely day.